1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58, is our text this evening. going to begin reading in verse 41, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 41, there's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars, a st- for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For this imperishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The reading of Holy Scripture. Be seated, please, and let's pray together. We thank you, O God, for your word We praise you for your word seven times a day, O Lord. We will praise you for your word, for its excellent greatness. We ask, O Lord, that 
Uh, out of the depth of your word, you would feed our souls tonight through the ministry of the Holy Spirit who works in us and reveals the truth to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When we think about the state of the souls of our believing loved ones who have departed this life, we suffer little distress if we rightly understand the biblical testimony. If we do so, we're certain that they're with Jesus, beholding his glory. We don't know much about the intermediate state, but we know enough to, be, to rest assured that our loved ones who have believed in Christ are in the delightful presence of Christ in glory. Our main concern is for their bodies. We struggle to reconcile ourselves that the beloved ones we have known so long and so well will be given over to the process of corruption and decay in the ground. Embalming delays that process and preserves the memory of uh, their earthly form for a little bit longer, but ultimately we know that because Man was taken from the dust. He returns to the dust. The doctrine of the resurrection and glorification is calculated to set our minds at ease and fill us with the anticipation of the fullness of eternal bliss that awaits believers, body and soul, at the last day. 1 Corinthians 15, which we've been dealing with today, is known as the resurrection chapter. Paul begins in verses 1 through 19 by proclaiming that the resurrection is central to the gospel in verses 1 through 4. Approving the, the authenticity of the resurrection from eyewitness accounts in verses 5 through 11, and showing the futility of belief in Christ and preaching Christ if Christ has not been raised from the dead, verses 12 through 19. And then the apostle proceeds in verses 20 through 28 to show that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, the guarantee that believers will follow him uh, in his resurrection. Verses 29 to 49, Paul confronts skeptics of, of the resurrection. To some degree, the apostle has alluded to the doctrine of glorification uh, in the argument of in verses 35 through 49, but in here in in our text, in verses 50 to 58, he turns his complete focus on glorification of which the bodily resurrection 
is a subset. Glorification has just two components, uh, the glorification of the soul and the glorification of the body. Paul informs us that the bodies of believers must be changed in order to enter into heaven and instructs us concerning the nature of that change. He tells us that the bodies of believers must be changed in order to enter into heaven and instructs us as to the nature of that change. We want to look together tonight at, uh, first at the necessity of the believer's glorification and secondly, the nature of the believer's glorification. The necessity and the nature of the believer's glorification. First then, the necessity of the believer's glorification. Parallel expressions here in verse 50 speak to the necessity of the believer's glorification. The first, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, refers to the weakness of earthly human existence and is equivalent to corruption. The second, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, can be and is, in some of our English translations, translated, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. From the context of Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians 15, it's evident that these expressions mean that the human nature in its earthly state can't enter in to the glory of heaven. We can't go to heaven as we are. The human body isn't in a state to, to, to do so, to enter into heaven, into heaven any more than the, the, the sinful soul is fit to enter into heaven without being uh, perfected. The earthly body is fit for earth, but completely unfit for heaven. That was true even of Adam's body before the fall and of every human body since the fall. So the apostle uses these parallel expressions here in verse 50 to emphasize the necessity of the believer's glorification. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. The believer's body must be made fit for heaven. And to further emphasize that truth, uh, Paul conveys uh, the necessity of the believer's glorification in positive terms, uh, terms in verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. He's warning those who were denying the doctrine of the resurrection that without new bodies of incorruption, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Both the Christian dead and those living at Christ's return will require this powerful 
divine operation of glorification. And it's vital for you to see that in our text, Paul isn't merely setting forth the truth of the bodily resurrection, the the bringing to life of the dead body. Paul's concern here is more specifically the doctrine of glorification of which we've said the resurrection is a subset. Lazarus, Jesus' good friend, was raised from the dead. His body was in the grave four days. It was as dead as dead can be. His sister Martha knew this, which is why she objected to Jesus' command to remove the stone from the tomb. There will be a stench. It will stink, uh, literally, she said to her Lord. But Lazarus wasn't glorified when he was raised. He died again. The apostle is speaking about more than the resurrection in the declaration of verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Remember that mystery in the New Testament is something that was concealed or hidden, veiled in the shadows of the Old Testament, but revealed in uh, uh, the New Testament. It comes to the full uh, light of revelation in uh, the New Testament. We will not all sleep, Paul says in verse 51, a a euphemism for for death uh, that the apostle uses significantly in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and following to comfort believers concerning their beloved Christian dead. But, he says, here in verse 51, we will all be changed, both The living and the dead will be changed. They will be glorified. Christians who are still alive on the earth when Jesus returns won't need to be resurrected. But those who are alive in Christ and those who die in the Lord will both require the divine act of glorification. Paul says that those who are alive on the day of Christ's return will not precede those who uh, have fallen asleep. He did this to comfort those who were concerned about their Christian loved ones who had gone on to be with the Lord in glory. 1 Thessalonians 4.15 Jesus will bring with him Paul goes on to say there in 1 Thessalonians 4, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in the Lord, and those who have died in the Lord will rise first, Jesus says, and and meet him the air. Then believers who haven't died will be caught up together with them in the air. They They will be changed just as those who have been raised from the dead will be changed, and they'll meet the Lord in the air and thus, Paul says, we will, they shall always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Flesh and blood cannot 
inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the imperishable inherit the imperishable. The necessity of the believer's glorification. We need to, we need to pause and, and appreciate from the apostles' words that glorification must precede the believer's full and final entry into heaven. Our bodies can't enter into heaven unless they're glorified. Now that we've considered what Paul has to say about the necessity of the believer's glorification, let's consider what he says about the nature of the believer's glorification. I'm going to say five things about that, of the nature of uh, that glorification. Glorification is an instantaneous, surprise, complex, transformational death-defeating act. In the first place, it's an instantaneous act. Paul is emphatic that the act of glorification will take place in an instant. In verse 52, he says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, believers will be glorified. In that respect, glorification is similar to the acts of regeneration, justification, and adoption. All are done instantaneously. Glorification is an instant act of glory on the body of a believer prior to that final his final entrance into glory with Christ. It's a surprise act. It's an instantaneous act. It's a surprise act. God frequently prepares his people for momentous changes that uh, he brings into their lives. Before regeneration, for example, God ordinarily causes a state of restlessness, fear, and a profound sense of sinlessness. The state of alarm, which we call conviction of sin, leads the sinner to ask, what must I do to be saved? And in a similar way, God prepares his people for death by giving them some indication that it's approaching. Sometimes it's rapid deterioration of their health, but sometimes uh, it's in their spirit. People sense that death is approaching. The first member of this congregation uh, that I had the sad duty to bury had this sense in her spirit. Uh, the Holtons were uh, a family that spent their summers up in New Jersey because it's cooler there and spent their winters uh, here in uh, North Carolina because it's warmer here. And at the time that Dottie Holton uh, began to sense that her time uh, of ending on this earth was nearing, 
she was in New Jersey, and she told her husband that they needed to get back to North Carolina because this is where she wanted to die. The Lord does this uh, in, in our in our experience in, in, in this life. But when the trumpet announces the end of the world, when this great moment of glorification, at least as it comes to uh, the believer, is about to take place, the whole universe will be taken by surprise. Certainly this is true of unbelievers and believers on the earth. Matthew 24, 36 and 42 says, Of that day or hour no one knows. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day, on which day your Lord is coming. But it's also true of the Christian dead. In heaven, Matthew 24, 36 also says that not even the angels of heaven know when that day is going to be. And if not even the angels of heaven know, then those believers whose souls, who are disembodied souls in heaven, aren't going to know either. And on that day, both the just and the unjust will be resurrected. John 5, 28 and 29 says the the wicked to a resurrection of judgment, believers to a resurrection of life. The wicked will face unending torment, being banished from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In other words, being banished from the comfortable presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10 tells us. Christians will rejoice to see that day. It will be the consummation of all of their hopes. It will vindicate them for all of their reproaches and suffering for Christ's sake. All believers will be comforted with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, rewarded and given eternal, perfect joys in heaven. We can only look upon this act of glorification as the climax of our redemption in Jesus Christ. It's an instantaneous surprise act. It's a complex Act. And the act of glorification will be God's greatest act since the six days of creation. And in many ways, will be more momentous than creation itself because it will resolve the destiny of human beings while creation simply placed them on probation, one writer has commented. The act of glorification is multifaceted. The circumstances in which God's elect find themselves on the day of the Lord will require this. 
Remember verse 51 says, Not all die, but all will be changed. Some will be alive. Some will be in the grave. Some will have burned to death in, in, in a fire, have been blown apart in explosions, or uh, some will be at the bottom of the sea. Well, whatever their circumstances, the disintegrated bodies of the saints will be reassembled and reorganized. Narrow-minded people have always had trouble with this. Paul wrote here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? But by the analogy of the seed in verses 36 and 37, Paul teaches that our resurrected, glorified bodies will be identified with the self-same DNA that we currently have, that we had when we died. We read this in the Old Testament shadows uh, this morning in Isaiah 26:19. Your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Revelation 20, verse 13 says, the sea will give up the dead. Sometimes even non-skeptics, that is, those who believe in the resurrection, struggle with this idea that uh, with the idea that, that Paul uh, gives to here that uh, the seed, the body, uh, is the seed that's planted into the ground, and from that seed, God will raise up a glorified body. I remember uh, talking to a, a, a young man once who's quite brilliant. He was a uh, mathematician. Uh, in doctoral studies at, at the time, and we were having this discussion about the resurrection of the dead and the fact, or at least what I was claiming, that uh, that the that the dead body, those the, the the bodies of of of, of believers will will be, uh, and unbelievers as well, will be raised up from the self the self same DNA, um, as it were. And he said. I, I, I just, I can't, it's hard for me to, to, to wrap my mind around that. He said, he said just think about a, a cemetery, and, and you've got all these people who have been buried in cemeteries, and their, their DNA is mixed together, their, uh, their molecules are, are mixed together. How, uh, how's the Lord going to raise up out of that stuff in the ground bodies uh, in such a glorious way. And I said to the young man, uh, do you believe that, that God made uh, the heavens and the earth and all that they contain and created man all out of nothing? He said, yes, I do. 
I said, how is it you can't believe that the Lord could take out of the ground, could reassemble out of the ground from the dust even, from uh, the disintegration of those bodies? How is it you cannot believe that God can reassemble for his own glory and to their glory uh, the bodies of, of the dead? Westminster Larger uh, Catechism says something that ought to be a great comfort to saints. We know that the the Lord tells us that uh, the death of his saints is precious to to him. The death of of the the saints uh, is precious to the Lord. But he also, the, 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 the Larger catechism also uh, helps us to understand that uh, even our bodies, when they are in the grave, as they are decaying, as they are corrupting, are still united to Christ. What is the communion in glory that with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death. The communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately immediately after death, is in that their souls are then made perfect in holiness. Again, we have no trouble understanding this. And received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light. And glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in their death continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds until until at the last day they again be united to their souls. Do you believe that? I once spoke to a minister of the gospel, a reformed minister of the gospel, who said that he did not believe this. I think I convinced him to believe this, but do you believe this? However the Lord does this, however Christ maintains that union with our bodies, do you believe? You ought to believe. I'm encouraging you to believe that when the bodies of our loved ones are laid in the grave, our believing loved ones, when we are laid in the, in the grave, our bodies remain in union with the Lord Jesus Christ because God has made us body and soul. And he does not disregard our bodies when they're laid in the grave. It's a tremendous comfort for believers. Now this, uh, for believers who've died, the, the act of glorification will involve God's operative act on their dead, upon their dead material and upon their perfected souls, which uh, will be their, their this. Their souls will be marvelously relocated in their 
resurrection body, which will be glorious and beautiful beyond imagination. The act of glorification will also change the body, bodies and souls of, of Christians who are alive at that time, not by raising them from the dead, but by reuniting, but by rather by instantaneously perfecting the soul and, and transforming the, uh, the body in, in perfecting. So it's an instantaneous, it's a surprise, it's a complex, it's a transformational act of glory. A change from perishable to imperishable, from mortal to, Im- uh, to immortal. Corruption is an aspect of mortality. God alone is wholly immortal in the sense that there is no corruption in God. There is no uh, decay in God. And one day, believers will be holy, immortal. There will be no decay or, or corruption. In this life, we're, we're always subject to death. We're always subject to its consequences. Uh, and corruption is one of those consequences. At the moment we're born, we begin to die. The body deteriorates, it wastes away in old age, and at death, the soul leaves the body in the grave to deteriorate further. But in the divine act of glorification, our bodies will be supernaturally transformed so that we will be beyond the reach of all sickness, all pain, all death, clothed with incorruption and immortality. A change from perishable to imperishable. A change from dishonor, verse 43 says, to honor. The present state of our body is dishonor and shame. That may not be apparent to the young, but it's virtually universally so in old age. The body loses its beauty. In old age, there may be almost nothing to suggest the elegance of youth. Charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting, the proverb says. Cosmetic surgery and cosmetic concoctions can delay this process, but they ultimately fail. Yet the glorified body will shine in inconceivable glory and beauty. A change, again in verse 43, a change from weakness to power. As the body deteriorates, it refuses to function as it used to. Exercise and rehabilitation can delay this process as well but eventually they will prove to be of no avail if the Lord gives us that many years. Because of all the effects of deterioration, we 
We can't do all that we want to do here. Strength and stamina, faith. We grow tired. We need to rest. We crave more sleep. This is true spiritually as well. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The soul grows weak under trial and temptation. But Paul is teaching us here that the feeble body will be changed on that day along with the soul. If the soul has already been changed, uh, then uh, the body to match the soul, if the believer is alive at that time, both the soul and the body marvelously perfected, marvelously glorified on that last day. And so there will no longer be a disjunction between the body and the soul. In our earthly estate, our soul in grace wills to do well. We want to do the will of God. We wish, we desire to do the will of God, which we don't always do. But when we do, it's never perfectly, because our motives are never perfected, not in this life anyway. Although our obedience pleases God and is accepted as perfect in Christ. But in the glorified state, we'll desire to do God's will and we'll find the strength to do God's will in the full measure of our desire, fully complying with the divine demands of perfect holiness in body and soul, something that we have never experienced in this life. And then in verse 44, Paul says, there's a change from a natural to a spiritual body. We mustn't think that the glorified Christian will be spiritual in the same way the angels are spirits in heaven. That's a a faulty conclusion sometimes drawn from Matthew 22, verse 30, uh, where Jesus says that in Uh, heaven, there will be no marriage or uh, giving in marriage uh, will be like the angels in heaven. Uh, Christians will have a body. Uh, We will have a a body. It will be a body that's very different from what it was on earth. Exactly what it will be like, we don't know. John admits his uh, ignorance In 1 John 3, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared, has not yet appeared what we shall be. We're told that the body will be spiritual, but we're told little else about what the spiritual body will consist of. An instantaneous, surprise, complex, 
transformational and death-defeating act. When this instantaneous, surprise, complex, and transformational act of, of glorification transpires, Isaiah's prophecy of chapter 25 and verse 8, quoted here in verse 54, will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Look at the way verses 55 and 56 describe it. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Victory is snatched away from death. The stinger is removed from death's tail. The law's power to kill due to sin is completely shut down. Such is this death-defeating act of the glorification of the body as well as the soul. We've seen that glorification is essential because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We've seen, uh, we, we've considered Paul's marvelous overview of the changes that the bodies of believers, that the bodies of believers will undergo when they're glorified uh, by God on the last day. But the, the apostle doesn't end his discussion concerning the glorified body without talking to us about what the practical consequences should be, how this should affect us in the here and now. In the first place, in verse 57, uh, he says, uh, it, ought to, it, it ought to result in thanksgiving. Knowing what you know uh, about glorification, knowing what Paul reveals to us here, knowing what the Holy Spirit reveals to us through Paul here, should cause thanksgiving to abound to God for the way in which we'll finally and forever triumph over sin and death and the grave through Christ's victory. We are co-victors with Jesus because all that God has done for His Son, He does for us in union with Him. Second, knowing that we'll one day be glorified should also strengthen and motivate us to persevere in our present service to Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. In the Lord. The doctrine of glorification is designed to make us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work, knowing that we'll be rewarded for kingdom labors on the last day. When that last trumpet sounds, that's the sounding of reward. For God's people. That's when they enter into their eternal rest. That's when they receive a crown of glory themselves. That's when they 
uh, out of gratitude to the Lord, take those crowns and lay them at the feet of their Lord. But then, third, longing for heaven ought to be one of the consequences of knowing the knowledge of, of, of this doctrine of the believer's glorification. The better instructed we are here about our glorification, about the glory of heaven, the more we long for that final state of heavenly abode uh, with our Lord. the more we recognize that we have already been raised up and seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, the more we recognize that, uh, that, that, this, that, that Paul's teaching there in Colossians chapter 3 is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, a, a means of helping us to understand the certainty of what our final state will be and make us long for heaven. And the more we long for that final state of our heavenly abode, the better we live for Christ's glory on earth. We do so with greater security and purpose in our Savior, putting temporal and eternal matters in proper perspective, being more and more enabled to rise above the mundane trivial and troubling matters of this life and to press the eternal glories of heaven upon a perishing world with greater urgency in our testimony to and preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that longing for heaven will cause us to say, Maranatha, Oh, our Lord, come. Let's pray. We do pray, oh, Lord Jesus, come. We pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come and bring uh, the consummation of all things. We pray, oh, Lord, you cause our hearts to abound with thanksgiving. We pray that knowing uh, what you have taught us through your spirit and what the apostle has written would strengthen and motivate us to persevere in our present service to Christ. We pray that you would give us a longing for heaven, not merely to escape the troubling circumstances of this life, not merely to, to uh, escape all those things in this world that are of deep concern, but to be with you, O Lord. Cause our hearts to resonate with your word. Cause this portion of your word to have its impact upon our souls. 
and calls us to put our trust and our hope in the eternal realities that you've set forth for us in this section. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.